Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. Right. Good morning, everyone. I'm going to pray again. We're going to jump right in. So, Father, thank you for what you're doing already in this place. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are already having your way in us. Thank you, Lord. We are partnering with your spirit this morning. God, we thank you for breaking in. Lord, we thank you for your word. We just honor your word today, Lord. It is living. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And we, we say, God, we are open to be cut by your word. We are open to be influenced by your word. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds Come and illuminate your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. I want the word of God to shape me and cut me and direct me. I, I feel we pray for an outpouring and we, we're believing for an outpouring, and, and I think it's so essential that we are rooted and grounded in the word, because when, when a move of God comes, that the one that we're believing for, you better not only be able to overcome the trials, but also overcome just the sheer amount of power and, and that's going to be displayed, like to overcome ourselves and, and to be rooted and grounded in the word, I think is essential um, for what we believe God is going to do in this city. And so, you know, we've been going through the book of Timothy, um, and we're going to continue through that today. I'm going to pick up where I left off last week. Um, so we ended with the first chapter of Timothy um, or at the very end of the first chapter. We're going to do a few more verses in Timothy chapter 1, and then we're going to join the chapter 2. Um, just to give a little preface to what this book is about, for those of you that may not have joined last week, um, the book of Timothy is written by Paul, an apostle to his spiritual son, Timothy. Timothy was tasked with overseeing the church in Ephesus um, at a time where there was a lot of trial going on. So it's a very powerful church, very important church that Paul had established years ago. And now, according to the prophecy that was made regarding this church, there had been false doctrine that's come through. So if you read Acts 19, Acts 20, you see the move of God that spread through Ephesus. It was powerful. It was mighty. People were being healed literally just by Paul's shadow. And, but it also created an uproar, and it created a lot of tension and adversity. And in the midst of that, a prophecy was, was stated, hey, there's going to be false doctrine spread in this church. And now, lo and behold, that prophecy is being fulfilled, and Timothy has been tasked to come in there and clean things up. It's not an easy task to bring reformation to a church um, and to bring healthy, sound doctrine. So I'm just going to throw up a slide real quick about the structure of this letter. Um, the first part is the opening commission to Timothy. We're going to finish that commission today, and then we're going to jump into the middle chapter. So chapter 2, we're going to cover the first seven chapters in chapter 2, and these sections provide some detailed instructions. They provide correction for the church um, in order to form and shape their doctrine that it would be healthy and strong. Then there's a closing commission, and then there's some awesome poems that are scattered throughout the text as well. For the purposes of today, as we get into chapter 2, I want to highlight this verse in chapter 3, because it gives us some context for where Paul's going. Chapter 3, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 14, says this, Although I hope, to come, I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these instructions, so that if I am delayed, you, might, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's Household, I love the word household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. 
See, the church is really important. The, the church is the avenue that God wants to use to bring forth the revelation and power and purpose that Jesus died for. He wants to use the church as the pillar and foundation of truth. And the church at large, we're pretty messed up. We got our issues. But God's word says that he is going to use the church to fulfill the things that Jesus started at the cross. And so that gives me confidence. I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of confidence. And it makes me want to also build something that truly is the household of God, to make the church the household of God. A household has a father. And so this church, our father is God and we are his children. And this is one of the core identities um, of this church that we believe church is supposed to be a family. And so I love in this term, they're saying here, you want to know how to be the household of God, how to conduct yourselves? I'm going to share that with you. And that's what Timothy um, or Paul describes to Timothy in the verses that are going to that we're going to cover today. So uh, I talked last week. I have a daughter. I have three of them. My oldest is Fern. She's eight years old. She's a very curious, smart um, girl. And so she says a lot of funny things to me that I like to share when I speak. So this week she comes up to me. This was a new one. I never heard this before. And I don't even know the context. I forget what we were talking about. But she's like, hey, Dad, you know what? I'm going to throw a really great funeral for you. <laughs> I said, Really? I said, why are, why are we having this conversation? This feels a bit morbid. I hope you're not prophetic. And she says, yes, I'm going to throw a great funeral. There's going to be a lot of people that come. And I'm going to give you a great rock. I said, a great rock? Yeah, you know one of those rocks, those things they plant in the ground when you, you're buried underneath it? Oh, a tombstone. I said, I'm going to give you a great rock. I'm going to give mom a great rock too. And so what are you going to put on that rock? She said, I got to figure it out. Holy man of God, best dad in the world. I said, no edits, no edits. That's perfect. I hope that's the way you see it that your whole life. So anyway, it was, it was just a fun little moment. Um, and I was reminded, like, you know what? I have a sense of comfort about my future because my oldest daughter is super responsible and loves the heck out of me. So even when I'm old and my body's falling apart, like I feel like she'll take care of me and now she's promised to give me a great funeral <laughs> and a great tombstone. So there's a level of comfort and peace that I can now walk in knowing, you know what? My physical security is taken care of and you know, once again, the party is already being planned. But I, I wanna encourage you today, it's so important that when we look ahead, right, when we look to our death, that when we look even to, to our life tomorrow, that, that we, we look and we have this sense of hope and peace and confidence and, and comfort in what's to come. And I, I think one of the things, even the information age and all the things that are being thrown at us, one of the things it's done is it's, get, it's given people a really negative sense of what's ahead of them and a really hopeless posture for what's to come in their life. And so just as much as my daughter Fern was encouraging and comforting in, in her vision and, 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 and even her stewardship of, of my future, I would rather, I, I need more than that, right, to have a, few, a, a real sense of confidence and peace. I need to know the plans of Jesus for my life. I need to know where this whole thing is going. And when I know that, when I know what he's done and what he will do and who I am and what role I play, I can stand with such confidence and courage and peace in the waiting. 
And so I, I think it's so important that we have that baseline of peace in our life. And I think it comes from having that hope of what is to come. And you know what's a great tool to give you that, that level of hope? Number one, the word of God. Number two, the word of God connected with prophecy. Prophecy is an, an incredible tool because it roots and grounds you in something that is to come. And it, and it becomes a stabilizing feature in your life. But how many of you know you want to make sure you're leaning on the right prophetic word? There's a lot of prophetic words that seem nice to the ears, but you would never want to lean or build your life on them. But the prophetic words that are from the Lord, that are based in his word, they're going to give you confidence. They're going to give you courage. They're going to give you comfort as you wait for the fulfillment of what Christ wants to do in your life and on the earth. Amen? So Timothy has just taken this assignment at Ephesus, and it's a hard assignment. It is a challenging task, and I doubt he wanted to do it. But because his spiritual dad told him to, he did it. And here, I want you to read, we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to pick it up there. I want you to hear how Paul, his spiritual dad, how he encourages Timothy to stay the course. Here's what he says. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that recalling them, you may fight the battle well. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, and so suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So we see here the importance of prophecy. It's the prophecy given to Timothy that Paul is pointing at in this moment. And we don't know exactly what that word was. It's not clear what it was. We know from other texts within this um, book as well in Timothy and in Timothy cha- or the second part of Timothy, we, we know that this word was probably given at Timothy's ordination. So when he was ordained as a minister, these words were given to him. And the elders and Paul laid their hands on Timothy. Not only did he get a prophetic word, which he's being reminded of, he also was given a gift, probably a gift to lead, a gift to minister, to do these very difficult tasks. And so we know that part about his word. Um, I find it interesting, though, that not only does he get that word, but he gets in the process a spiritual dad, Paul, who not only... He not only does he have a word, he has a dad who's going to remind him of the word. He has a dad who's going to say, hey, like, I know Ephesus is a tough place. I know New York City is a tough place to live. It's a tough area. But do you remember the word? I was there. I laid my hands on you, and the word was given from the elders. And I want to remind you of that word. I want to remind you of the gift that's been placed in you. I want to stir that thing up because you've been given a purpose and a task because Jesus has things he wants to do on the earth through you. And I know it because I know the word over your life. I'm going to bring it to remembrance that you may walk in it and not give up and not give in and fight the good fight. We need spiritual dads that will do that in our life. We need to be spiritual parents that will do that in other people's lives. Timothy needed it. You and I need it. I wouldn't be in this city if it wasn't for prophetic words over my life. I wouldn't stay in this region if I didn't have words and spiritual parents that reminded me of those words. 
You need it. I need it. We need it. See, prophecy helps us wage good warfare, but we have to test the prophetic. And I I would challenge us as a company, and we have a lot of prophetic people here. We're very much a prophetic community. I would challenge us to give more substantial words. Give, ask the Lord for words for your friends, for your family, for this church that are those tombstone type of words. Words that you could write on your tombstone because they're going to anchor you all the way to the end of your life. I'd rather have that than some of these milk toast prophecies that I hear. Like, they're kind of nice. They're kind of encouraging for the moment. But will they take me to, to run the race? Like, I want a word that's going to anchor me for my, the entirety of my life. A word that I can give to my kids, that I can pour into them. That's the type of word I want. And I think we can ask God of that, and we can have that. And so I think it's so important that we just up our game in terms of prophecy. We want something substantial and something that can be tested. I don't want to give people words that they're just so open-ended. You can't even test if that's accurate. So we need to grow in this just as the church at large. And I really believe our company is called to steward this as we pray and we fast and we contend for what God, God wants to do in this city. We're going to give prophetic utterances that are going to keep the city at large and is anchored and in truth and thriving in the midst of come what may. So I'm really thankful for this prophetic company, and I believe... Um, these are words for us particularly. Now let's get to the other guys here, the guys we don't want to talk about. Himenaeus and Alexander, um, the ones that are getting turned over to Satan. That sounds pretty intense, right? Um, well, if you get a little bit into the context here, what Paul is really saying is not like, you know, condemning these guys forever. Like he's saying they need to be taken out of the church, out of the out of the taken outside of the walls of the church and put in the walls into the place of the world, which Satan has control of. So he's saying expel, basically excommunicate these guys from your church. And and that's what happens to them. They get excommunicated. But the desire and the goal is not that their lives would be destroyed. He says, so that they would not blaspheme, so they would learn. There's always this, this undertone of reconciliation that's desired. And that, that's God's heart, and you see that coming through these verses. Now, we know a little bit about these guys. Um, well, we, we might know about them. They're mentioned in the Bible, but we don't know if it's exactly the same guy. Um, Himenaeus is, re- is referred to in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and it says there he claimed the resurrection of the dead had already taken place. So probably these two guys, they're elders probably in the church that are, that are spitting some of this false doctrine. They're probably the very people that Paul has come to clean up the mess with. And so even with them, he's giving them a sense of charity and that he's saying, kick them out that they may come back in, in a sense, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Um, so moving on, we're going to jump into chapter 2. So chapter 2, I'm going to read starting from verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, it should be noted, right, that this is the beginning of the instructional message to the church. So catch the very first thing that Paul has to say to this important church in Ephesus. Here's the very first thing he tells them. I urge then, that's a strong word, by the way. That's like, a, that's like an authoritative word. I urge you then, first of all, petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Keyword, all people. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This verse is so important to our church. It's in our bylaws. 
This verse is a critical verse for our company. Because we have a calling to be a house of prayer, to be intercessors, to operate in the various prayer components that are being addressed here by Paul. And it's the number one admission he gives to this church and to many more. So if you read through many of Paul's writings, read, read um, in Ephesus, right? This is original writing to the church in Ephesus. For this reason, ever since I've heard about your faith and your love for God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, we always thank God for you, continue, and we continually mention you in our prayers. Philippians 1, 3, thank, I thank God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy for you because of your partnership in the gospel. Time after time, letter after letter, the very beginning, Paul is saying, I have been praying and contending for you. That's his posture towards the church at large. And so when he encourages Timothy and the church to do it, he's telling them something that he's practicing, that he's living, that he's doing. And he's telling them because this is a recipe for revival. Prayer is essential for anything that you want to see in the, in the kingdom. It starts and ends with prayer. And so we can't, we can't understate the importance of prayer. Um, I want to read a quote to you from Mike Bickle. This is, uh, he leads the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, and he says this about prayer. Beloved, our private times of prayer and our public prayer meetings may not move us. How many have been to prayer meetings where you prayed a lot and it didn't move you? Maybe this morning even. But they, but they move the angels, and more importantly, they move the heart of God. Never measure your prayers by what you feel. When we pray in agreement with God's will, our weak prayers move the heart of God, even if it doesn't move our own. We need to be encouraged by this because we are called to sustain prayer, to build prayer, to grow in prayer, to lead the city in, in, in prayer. People come to me all the time and they're asking about prayer. They, there's so many churches that want to grow in prayer. They're looking to us for leadership. And so I want us to, to posture ourselves with, to kind of like own this. Bill and Tammy and Sound Jules, they've owned it for a while, and some of us are picking it up. If you're a part of this house, I want you to own prayer. So you know what? I've been called in this city. I've been called to pray. I've been called to stir others up to pray. And so I'm going to get into some practicals, but this is our DNA. This is why we exist. This is why we're planted in this city. This is why this church is here, because it's the ingredient and the recipe for revival. So just a few practicals. I'm stealing these from Mike Bickle. Um, a few practicals he gives for, for sustaining prayer. And the first is schedule time to pray. So we have prayer here all throughout the week. We have, we're here prayer Tuesday and f Wednesday this week and Friday. And we have our, our prayer that, um, that Rich mentioned today, Monday through, fr through Wednesday. Prayer and fasting for three days. Engage in it. T take the things that are already on the schedule and be a part of it as you can. But I encourage you, schedule time for prayer in your personal life. If you schedule it, you're a lot more likely to do it. If you don't schedule it, who knows whether it's going to happen or not. But you know, the other great thing is you schedule it, but then also we're, we're New Yorkers. There's so much commuting. There's so much downtime that we could choose to, you know, read terrible news or, 
or anyway, or look on our, our social media feeds, or we could take that 10 minutes on the subway and we could begin to contend, say, God, would you pour out your spirit? I know Rich was doing it coming in here today. You could, you could begin to intercede in your car as you're driving, intercede wherever you're going. And so taking that time that already exists in the midst of the culture of the city and, and putting it into prayer, putting it in action. And so that's another just practical thing we can do. Having a prayer list is also really helpful. So then if you're bored or you don't know what to pray, grab your list. You don't have to go through your list in the beginning. I'm not a list guy. I don't even like lists. But if I don't know what to pray, I'm going to get on that intercession feed that we have going on for this church, and I'm going to find some stuff that I can pray for because I don't know what to pray. But there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of need. And so that's one way we can keep our prayer going. The last and most important thing, knowing that God delights in you will help you to pray longer and more effectively and in alignment with his will more than anything else you could possibly do. Knowing he delights in you, knowing you're not coming in just to say a bunch of things and hope you can move God and hope you can shift some things. You're coming in because he loves you and you love him and you're delighting in him in the course of prayer. And so some of us, we just need to change how, how prayer feels in our life and, and, and kind of take off some of the, the taglines, um, the ways that we viewed it in the past. Um, I'm going to give you a few quotes on prayer related to what I just shared. Uh, Corey Tim Boom says this, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the king and keep it. Good word, Corey. John Calvin says this, to make intercession for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. If you love someone, if you want to see God move in their life, do good works for them, yes. But even before you do that, pray for them. That's how you express the love of God. That's, That's how you pour out his love on them first is prayer. We have such a workspace culture in the West that like that just seems like 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 it it seems so far down the line right like we want to do all these things for them and then maybe if we have time we'll pray for them start with prayer when your works flow out of your prayer life my gosh they're way more effective and you're not trying to control people you're just agreeing with what God said over their life it's a it's a different ball game so I'm going to get real quickly into these four different areas that Paul mentions in prayer so he lists petitions prayers intercession and thanksgiving not that all our prayers have to be totally all these but it just helps to give a little definition right so it's practical petitions are simply asking for something in urgency based on the need so prayer should not always be asking but prayer should and often is asking we're petitioning god we're bringing our supplications before like lord your word said this we're going to pray boldly would you come and do it would you come and heal? Would you come and restore? Would you come pour out your spirit as you said you would? And in agreement with his word, we can pray bold prayers of petition. And it, it's, it's a critical type of prayer. Prayer in general, right, the next word, is just a broad word referring to all types of communication with the Lord. So he uses just a general word for prayer because prayer is just having a conversation. You know, prayer also involves listening. You're, you're praying and then you're, you're waiting and you're listening and you're engaging because you're in participation with him. You're not here performing, you're participating. Big difference. All right, intercession. This one we talk about a lot. Tammy did a whole class on this. If you want to learn more about intercession, go to the Moravian prayer or go to the Moravian tour that we're going on. This refers to prayer requests made on others' behalfs and it's mediation between two parties. So we see this in scripture. We see this in Genesis 18. Look at how Abraham engages um, with Sodom and Gomorrah. He's praying and asking God to intervene, to not do these things. Look at David in um, Samuel 2, verse 12. We see him 
we see his intercession for his son who is dying. So he doesn't eat. He fasts. He intercedes saying, God's merciful. He's gracious. Maybe he'll change his ways. Maybe, maybe he'll save this, this child. And so intercession is a key part um, of our prayer life. The last one, thanksgiving. This one is so easily missed, and it really, it's the, it's, the, it's the sandwich of prayer. If you want a sandwich prayer, your bun is Thanksgiving, and your bun is Thanksgiving. Like, and you can put all the meat in the middle, but do, do the Thanksgiving before and after, because, boy, you'll, you'll pray differently, first of all, and secondly, then your heart won't get cold and weary. You'll, you, you won't burn out. I think prayers of Thanksgiving are so underrated. If you're feeling down in the dumps, if you feel depression and hopelessness sort of like weighing on you, begin to be, give thankful prayers. Begin to say, God, well, I don't have this, but you know what I do have? You've given me this. You've given me this. You've given me this. And you begin to war in the spirit with gratitude, with thanksgiving. If you start doing that, you can pray, then all the other stuff, it gets a lot easier. Because your mind is out off of yourself. It's onto his kingdom. All right, here's a few quotes as well. I got Andrew Murray coming at you. Andrew Murray was amazing, and Tammy quoted him a lot in her class. That's why I like to read him. Uh, He said this, some people pray just to pray, and some people pray to know God. Very different posture, right? I'm praying because God told me to pray. I'm just going to go do the thing I'm supposed to do. I'm praying because I want to know him. I'm praying because he he said to pray so that I could be in, in deeper communion and fellowship with him. I could understand his ways and partner with him. Mike Bickle says this, prayer is not about informing or persuading God, but about connecting with him in relationship. He is looking for conversation and dialogue with us. Prayer should be conversational. It's not this this just method of petition. There is connectivity. There is dialogue. It's dynamic. And so so all these are, are just helpful tips for prayer. Now, the emphasis on this verse is that we are to pray for everyone everyone and I think that's interesting because of the context right there's false doctrine being spread so some scholars believe the reason the focus is on everyone is there's this elitist sort of ideology that's being that's being sown into the church uh we'll we'll, we'll pray for this people or the people that are that are doing these things the right people the best people but it's and Paul's saying, no, you gotta spread, you gotta spread a much larger blanket of prayer. You need, to, you need to open this thing up and pray for everybody. Don't limit anybody. Like God's heart is to save every single person. And so the emphasis on everything, or everyone rather, is a really important one we don't wanna miss. Um, he also says, you know, pray for authorities and kings. So that's a very specific word that he gives. He said, you need to pray for your authorities. You need to pray for your kings. How many of you know their, their authorities and kings were way worse than the ones we have in this country? Like, they were pagan kings, and, and, and they were pagan authorities, and they were bringing, I mean, they were torturing Christians. They were doing all sorts of nonsense, right? They were in full control. And so if, if they can pray for those kings and authorities, I think we can pray for our kings and authorities. Like, if, if that's the commission to them, how much more so is it for us? Um, so, and then the last part, it says, praying for kings and authorities that you may live, what? Peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So we pray for kings and authorities that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, this does not mean that we live some tension-free life. Like, I think sometimes in our culture when we hear that, we just think, oh, a peaceful, quiet life. I'm just going to go. I'm going to go in my apartment and just, like, and just pray and then not be involved in anything else. That's, that's not what this is saying. Like, it's not, it's not saying that at all. 
In fact, he's talking about living a life that's blameless, like a, a life that is peaceful and quiet and that you're not, out, you're not out warring against all the authorities. You're praying for them, but you're praying for them that you may be an influence to them. So it's not talking about this secluded life where you're just, ah, oh, I'm just going to live my life separate. And people use it for that. Like, well, I'm just going to live a peaceful and quiet life. No, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, and you are called to advance it. So it's not about that, but it is about not being this sort of shoot from the hip, like, I'm going to rail against authority. I'm going to take everybody down for Jesus. No, you're to do it from a meek, humble posture. You're to do it from a different spirit than others would try to do it from. You're like, oh, it works for them. You know, they're, they're mean, they're angry, and they get their way. God said, don't do it that way. Don't do it that way. Come from a quiet and peaceable spirit, but you still bring the truth and you stand for what's right and true. That's a more powerful approach. That's, a, that's the godly approach. That's the approach you and I have been given, that we may live a life of godliness and holiness before people. Let that convict them more than our angry jeers at them to change this or change that. No, we're going to say change it, but we're going to come humbly and peacefully and full of the love of Jesus. Let that weigh on you. Let that shift your heart. That's the posture for the, us to, to lead in the church if we want change. And, and I think governmentally, we just, we run into all sorts of, our political preferences have way too often become the driving force of our prayers. Who we like politically, who we vote, they're the people we pray for, and the other people we don't, we just, are you supposed to pray for your enemies? If you, if you hate them, if they're your enemies, pray for them more. Like, and so we have these, we need to call out, religious or we need to call out political authorities when they do things that are that are no good we definitely need to call them out when when there is injustice when there are discrimination when the unborn aren't being protected when there when children are being are being mutilated and the government is promoting it sex changes things of that nature we should say something it not to live this quiet peace oh we're not going to say anything we don't want to ruffle any boats no you should say something but if you say something make sure you pray before you say something Make sure that you're taking into prayer your authorities and your leaders, not just those that you align with, but those that you don't. The president should be on your prayer list. The governor should be on your prayer list. The mayor should be on your prayer list. Every senator and congressperson, they should be on your prayer list. I don't care who they are or what they stand for. They should be on your prayer list. And some of us here, there is a calling on your life to influence these types of people. But what I've seen, I personally have been convicted of this, you get this prophetic word, you feel this calling, you have this sense, and maybe it's even your industry, right? Different authority figures. You're like, I'm going to be one of those people, or I'm going to influence one of those people. And then we don't pray for those people. Like, we just carry that word, and we think, well, you know, that'll, that'll happen one day. I don't know. Like, the Lord challenged me. He said, if you, if you believe that word, then you would pray differently for your leaders. If you believe you're going to run into this person or influence or become this person, then why aren't you praying for them now? And so I I felt that conviction in my own heart. And I I want, I'm sharing that with you because I believe some of you are going to be convicted. And it's going to help you because it's actually going to keep you on the path God has for you. You're going to pray for those leaders instead of smearing them, being mad at them. And you can tell them what's true, but you can tell it out of a heart of prayer. All right? All right. We're going into verse we're going to keep reading through Timothy chapter 2. This is verse 3. And it says this. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who once again wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge, to a knowledge of the truth. So key word here, pleases God our Savior. God is our Savior. 
He's being very selective in that term. Once again, he's dealing with false doctrines, saying, no, 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 God is our Savior. You have, you have a Savior, and he is God. And so he's speaking into a polytheistic world where there's many gods, and some of them are, instead of praying for the government, they're praying to the government. They're praying to the emperor, right? And he's saying, no, 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 you have one Savior, and your Savior is not Caesar. Like, your Savior is God. And so that's a very key word to, to note there. Um, now, how does this work, right? Because it says that God wants, or some translations say desires, some say wills, all people to be saved. Well, how does that work? Because if you read the scriptures, you know not all people are saved. So when you, you kind of wrestle with that and say, okay, but God wants it, but I know it doesn't happen. So how does that, how does that play out? People have used this scripture to come up with a lot of funny things. So they've used it to say, well, there is no hell. There is no judgment day. Everybody gets in. Look, it's God's will that they all would be saved, and God's going to get what he wills, right? And so they've taken these verses and used them in that way. The only problem with that is there's a whole lot of other scriptures that don't say that. And so that would be a great example of taking a very narrow view, taking one little verse out of context, and trying to make that application for all of the scriptures when you got piles of stuff that says differently. It says there is a judgment day. It says there is a hell. So there are those that, that run from God, and God, and, they, and God lets them run. They reject him. And so, so how do we, what do we do with this? So I, I think a, a really key distinction here is there's, there's two different types of will. There's, there's God's moral will, and there's, and there's God's sovereign will. Moral will, like God morally would will, he would say, don't, I, don't murder anyone, don't steal don't covet your neighbor. That's, he wills, he desires that for you and for me. But somebody is going to get murdered today in this world. So, well, well, is that not God's will? No, it was his moral will. It was his desire, his want versus his sovereign will. His sovereign will will absolutely 100% happen. There's, there's nothing, there's no choice of man. That, that, there's nothing that could change the sovereign will of God. It's sure, it's foundational, and it will come to pass. So this verse is talking about a moral will not about a sovereign will. And so once again, it's just important that we talk through these things because if you don't know that, people can take these things and they create universalism, which basically means everybody gets in. Like they, they, they create all these false doctrines, which is exactly the thing that this was written to combat. Um, so we're going to keep jumping in. We're going to go to 1 Timothy 2. I'm going to start in verse 5. So verse 5 and 5 through 6, and it says this, For there is one God. Keyword one, there is one mediator. Once again, he's combating false doctrine between God and mankind. And who is a mediator? The man. He is a man. Jesus is a man. He, these are all key words, right? He's, he is signaling. This is, a, this is a, a signal to them. The man, Christ Jesus, who did what? Who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to us at the proper time. I love that last part. God's timing is perfect. All this transpired exactly in the sovereign will of God. So this focus here on one, once again, he's speaking to a polytheistic culture. There's, you know, they're pagans. There's many different paths to God, right? We have the same problem in our current culture. People believe and they think there's, well, there's many different paths, right? You could, you could go this path, you could go that path. There's all different ways you can get to God. 
And, and, and people define that in our current culture as spiritual. I'm, I'm a real spiritual person. You know, like, like I believe your religion's good and that religion's good. That, that sounds like a wholly different, totally different religion to me because you don't believe what I believe. You don't believe what the Muslims believe, and you don't believe what the Hindus believe or the Buddhists believe. What You believe about your own religion, and it's not what I believe. <laughs> and so we, we have this in our culture where this idea of being spiritual is this where all paths lead to God, and what it does is it totally steals from what's true and right and good, and it, and it, and it, it makes everything on the equal playing field. But the problem with that is there's only one God and there's only one mediator. There's just one. And so that ideology would try to make us think there's all these multiple paths. You know, Muslims would say, well, it's by your works. If you follow the five pillars, you'll be good. Buddhists would say, well, um, it's through enlightenment. If you're here to achieve enlightenment, you know, that, that'll help you get to God. The Hindus would say, well, there's, there are lots of paths, but you need to come under this system in order to achieve those paths. And the Christians would say, actually, there's only one way, and it's by grace through faith. In Jesus. That's the only way. If you tell somebody that on the subway, you tell them God loves you, they're like, oh, cool, thanks. You tell them there's only one way to God and his name is Jesus, they act differently. It's a different response. Oh, you're, you're, you're so narrow-minded. That, that's so, like, unloving of you. No, no, it, it's the truth. And I have to tell it to you because this is the way for your freedom, for your wholeness, for your eternal salvation. I, I can't just come under this umbrella of every path leads to God because it's, it's pure deception. And we've been called to steward this gospel. Josh McDowell has this quote, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. It says, this is what God has done for us. He has said, I forgive you. But he paid the price for the forgiveness himself through the cross. It's a payment that Buddha... Muhammad, Confucius, or any other religious leader cannot offer. No one can pay the price by just living a good life. It sounds exclusive to say it, but we must say it because it simply is true. There is no other way but Jesus. He is the one mediator. And that term mediator, he, it's, it's to fix the problem, right? He's the only one that actually fixes the problem. Buddha doesn't fix the problem. The problem is sin. We talked about it last week. Sin has corrupted the human heart. Sin has separated us from a holy God that we were made to be in fellowship with. But because of our sin, we cannot access him. We cannot even go before him. And Jesus does something nobody else does. He addresses the problem of sin because he comes as a man and he lives a perfect life, and he lives our life. He lives as if he were us, and he takes on our sin and our guilt and our shame, and he bleeds for us, and he dies for us, and he's risen to new life so that we can be raised to new life with God, so that we can be a new creation, so that we can escape sin's, sin's snares on our life. Nobody else does that. So don't tell me all roads lead to God. How? How do they get to God? How do they deal with sin? They don't. Only Jesus does. And we're the ones that are supposed to tell people this. You and I, in a loving but fearless way. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one mediator. A mediator is needed for reconciliation because we've been estranged from God. We're aliens to him. We need to get back to him. A mediator is needed to provide propitiation for our sin. That simply means to provide for the wrath of God that's going to be poured out on you and me because of our sin. So we need that mediator who is going to take on that wrath 
And Jesus bore that on his body on the cross that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. Hebrews 9.15 says this, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom, once again the word ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus established a new covenant, and he mediated it for you and for me. He gave himself as a ransom. A ransom in that time was money that would have been paid to free a slave. So you'd given that to a slave owner to pay the, the payment for their life. Jesus paid that ransom for you and for me. There was a massive cost, right? It was his body. It was his life. It was his blood. And he paid that, that you and I may be with God. But it was a heavy, heavy cost for our freedom, for our wholeness. No other religion can espouse that. No other man has done that. It's all, it's all deception, to be honest. And I was talking to a lady the other day. She was telling me, you know, I'm spiritual. I'm into all these paths. And I was like, I was like, I got to tell you, like, I don't think you know what Christianity is. Can I share with you, like, what it really is? Because you say you believe what I believe, but I'm telling you, you don't believe what I believe. And so I shared it with her, and you wouldn't believe her response. She was like, oh, so you think there's only one way to God? Yeah, I do. Oh, like, well, tell me more about that. And how do you know that? And, and the openness that people have, especially right now, the Lord has opened up so many people's hearts. We can't be afraid to share and think they're going to run and they're going to get mad. They might get mad, but their eternal salvation could be on the table right here. So let's come and bring them the truth and risk it. Let's put our chips in the table and say, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And if you receive it, my gosh. And if you don't, maybe I just sowed some seeds that God will eventually blossom in, in their life. And so we have nothing to lose. We have everything to gain by sharing this truth. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for us. You know, I was, um, when you go to the store, um, sometimes if you buy large items, depending on what grocery store you're at, they put these little stickers on your items. And because they don't, you know, they want to know that you didn't steal it. And so I was going the other day, I think I bought like seltzer or something, and they put a big sticker on it. It's a big orange sticker. And it says, thank you, paid in full. And I was like, oh, man. Like, I read it, and I was like, no, I felt like the Holy Spirit, like, kind of coming on me a bit. And, I, and, and the Lord encouraging me, like, yeah, you know that sticker? It's on your forehead. It's written on your forehead. If you've given your life to Jesus, that paid in full sticker follows you around everywhere you go. And the enemy would want to come and tell you differently want to condemn you, want to, want to make you like work harder to get out of your problem. But you just point to your sticker on your head. Jesus, his blood, his body, I'm paid in full. And so we have to have an acknowledgement of what he's done, of the ransom that was paid so the enemy doesn't try to come and steal us and derail us from the prophetic words and from the, from the truth of what God's called us to do. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come up. Now, Jesus Jesus said himself, there's, he's the only way, right? And it says he gave his life. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it. He gave it up. And why did he give it? For, for, out of love for you and for me. He gave his life. And, and he gave it freely. <laughs> he gave it freely because he loved us. And if there was any other way, God would have done it. 
Jesus was crying out in intercession and prayer for you and for me. God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass before me. God said, no, this is the way. Your, your blood and your body broken and spilled. This is the way. And Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. I'll follow you, Father. I'll do what you say. The obedience that he had to follow the one way to get back to God. And, and he agreed with his father and he, and he plowed the way for you and for me. Not only did his death make a way for us to new life. You know, he actually is interceding for us continually. So it's not just this one-time thing. There is an ongoing prayer that Jesus is doing for us for the fulfillment of his redemptive plan for the earth. And so when he calls us to intercession, he's calling us to conform to his image because that's what he's doing. He's at the right hand of God the Father with all power, with all authority, and he's contending right now for you and for me to come into his kingdom for the restoration of all things in heaven and on earth, coming together, made in Christ and fulfilled in Christ, and that is what's happening right now, right now. So our faith is built on what Jesus did, on what he's going to do, but also what he's actively doing. We're dependent on the intercession of Jesus for every breath of our life. Isn't that crazy? We are so dependent on God. Romans 8, 34 says this. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7.25. Continual intercession from our Father. Continual intercession through the Son for us. Very last verse says this. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. This is Paul writing. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So all this stuff Paul's doing, all this stuff he's saying, it's being driven by his love for Jesus. It's being driven by his understanding of who he is. He's been called to be a herald. One who proclaims the victory of another. That's what a herald does. He's proclaiming the victory of the son of Jesus to any and everybody who will listen. He's been called for proclamation, and he's been called to minister to the Gentiles. He gets this right at his baptism, right at his conversion. He has prophetic words. We don't know exactly what was said, but we know this was stated right at the beginning. So Paul would know this is his call. So he would run the race. So he would bleed and die himself for Christ. What is the word that you were standing on for your life? What is your tombstone word? What is that prophetic word that's connected with the word of God that's driving how you live and how you operate? You need one. It's going to help you. It's going to guide you. I'm going to tell you real quickly about this story. Um, there's this guy... He's a famous guy in church history, but I find a lot of people don't know about him. His name is Polycarp. How many people have heard about Polycarp? Just show your hands. Oh, you get some here. Polycarp, he's this incredible martyr, um, one of the early martyrs in the church. He was a disciple of John, 
the Apostle John. And his story is very interesting. So he was the bishop in Smyrna. And so they think, right, the book of Revelation is written to all the different churches, and Smyrna is one of them. And here's, here's what was written. I'll read it to you. It says this, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Polycarp probably was one of the first people to read the book of Revelation. Reads this letter to his church. He's the bishop of. And the trials that would then ensue his life, this, I believe there's a part of this written to him specifically. So basically, he's in his town, and they're doing these festivals for Caesar, um, and, and they, they get tired of torturing the atheist. They would torture the atheist back then, and they want to torture the Christians. They say, where's Polycarp? Bring him out. He's 86 years old, and they go looking for him, and what's he doing? He's held up with his friends, fasting and praying for the gospel to go to the nations. What his spiritual dad, John, taught him to do, that's what he's doing. And so they tell him, hey, they're, they're trying to come and kill you. They're going to martyr you. And he's like, whatever. Like, he literally is kind of like, whatever. Like, I'm not worried about him. So in their time of fasting and prayer, he gets this vision, right? And this vision, it's a flaming pillow. And through the vision, the Lord confirms to him what probably he already knew, in a sense, from this letter, that he was going to burn to death for Jesus. So he has this, this sense, right, that it's a tombstone word. That it's, that's, a, that's a strong prophetic word. And they go and they start looking for him. He starts running and going different places. And finally, he just kind of gives up and they catch him, right? And they take him to the Colosseum and they say, we're going to have the animals tear you apart. And he's like, so be it. And they said, you know what? Like, we're, actually, we're going to burn you. Like, we're going to burn you. But you know what you have to do? You have to, you can, you can not be burned or not teared apart by animals, if you give your allegiance to Caesar, if you give your allegiance to the Romans, or if you curse Jesus. And he, he, he goes to them and he says, apparently you guys aren't familiar about the fire of hell. I'd rather burn five minutes in the fire here on earth than have to burn there. And you should know that it's a real thing. And so he preaches to these people and basically says, come what may, come bring it, because I'd rather burn here than burn there. And you should too. So he gives this bold word, and they're like, whatever, we're going to kill you anyway. And so they, so they say, you have an, he said, can I have some time? They say, okay, we'll have an hour. So he goes with his last hour. He doesn't go out and his friends and eat. He doesn't go and, and do the things maybe we would think to do. You know what he does with his last hour of life? He goes and he contends for a move of God in the nations of the earth. He goes and he pours his, his voice and his life and his prayers out to the Lord, knowing this is his last chance to be a part of God's movement on the earth. He's about to leave this earth, but he's going to give every prayer he's got right down to the end. So they go and they burn this guy at the stake, right? They set him up. And the writings on this, literally they couldn't even burn him. Like the, the flames, it says, came around him almost like arches. And they were petrified. And they went and they had, to just, they had to just run him through with a sword because literally the flames are coming around this man. His martyrdom inspires 
to this day, many, 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 many people. Because he knew his storyline. He had a prophetic anchor for his life. And even at 86, he finished strong. He finished well. Everybody stand for me, please. Father, I pray today, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come and encourage and strengthen your church today. God, we don't, we don't want to live any less than what you've called us to, God. Lord, we don't want to live a life that's so shallow, on shallow words, with shallow promises. God, you said you desire the nations. You've called us, you've placed us in this city to disciple the nations of the earth, to pray and believe and to see a mighty move of God in all the earth. And God, whether that requires all of our time and energy in prayer, whether that requires our very life, God, I pray today, Lord, that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our inner man, that we would not set ourselves short. God, I pray today, Lord, that you would remind us of who we are, that we've been ransomed, that we've been redeemed, that the blood of Jesus has been spilled for us, that we now live as new creations in Christ, and thus we can have confidence in the present, knowing where we're going in eternity. Yeah, I just feel for some of us today, the Lord wants to, he wants to shake you out of complacency. He wants to put a prayer life in the midst of your heart that's beyond what you've known. That, that's not performance. It's not works. It's alignment with his purposes. He wants to give you a prophetic word that's going to not just cause you to be happy this year or in two days or six months, but it's going to root and ground your life in Christ for the purposes and the callings of his kingdom that you will get to delight in one day. That in eternity, you'll get to delight in those things. So God, I pray today, would you lay that foundation? Would you lay that prophetic word? Would you come and remind us of what well, we would have certainty of your love, certainty of your forgiveness, and certainty of our purpose in this masterful plan for redemption? We're going to go back into worship. Minister team, you guys could come on up. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at LifeCenterNYC or YouTube at LifeCenterChurchNYC.